Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Once again, we wake up to the hinge of fate, lots of action. It does feel as if the world is changing every 24 hours or so in terms of the world rallying around Ukraine, or at least rallying to its support. More countries joining in the sanction regimes, also sending weapons, on the other hand. The Russians are becoming increasingly savage in their attacks on civilian populations. I don't think that that should be a shock, but as Vladimir Putin realizes that he has miscalculated, uh, he is uh, upping the ante. And you're seeing that in the pictures out of Kharkiv. And of course, uh, we have columns headed toward Kiev. Uh, so let's talk about this, uh, where we're going on this, uh, on just another day um, where we feel that so much is in balance. And we're very, very fortunate to have Clint Watts with us. Uh, Clint is a uh, cybersecurity consultant, distinguished research fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, which is a think tank. He contributed to MSNBC, non-resident fellow with the Alliance for Securing Democracy. And just a couple of just extra you know, background notes. Clint's a West Point graduate, Army veteran, former FBI special agent who has written very extensively on terrorism, counterterrorism, social media influence, and Russian disinformation, which seems so timely. So first of all, good morning, Clint. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Charlie. Well, before we get into the details, I, I have to ask this question. So how are you feeling this morning? Your sense of, of the way things are going. And the reason I'm asking that is I think there's been a lot of optimism, maybe a little bit of irrational exuberance. And now I, I at least am kind of feeling this growing anxiety about what might be about to happen here, that this thing might turn just ghastly. But talk me down from that. Where, what is your mood? I share in your mood, Charlie, which is, it's like a party that starts to fizzle out and then the hangover comes, I think, which is the reality of our limitations in the EU, NATO, the US to do something about this. You know, there's some boundaries around it. And so I think the first week euphoria is Russia was not as good as we thought they were going right. to be. The Ukrainian military was much better than we thought we were going to be. And that's due to 10 years, I think, of U.S. and NATO partners training them. We had trainers there. We were doing special operations training with their forces. I think that between that, stingers and javelins and a few other weapon systems, incredible, you know, that that this Ukrainian army and their people have resisted the way they did. And that's also created this information space where the Russian disinformation hasn't worked and the Ukrainian information campaign is working masterfully, right? And that was unexpected. So... Everything is upside down. The Russian army is not what I was told it was going to be in all my training in mm. the infantry schools mm -hmm. 25 years ago. They look awful. Uh, their initial invasion, it was bold to begin with. You don't usually invade on three fronts because you have logistical problems. It hinged on taking Kiev quickly. Uh, there being a political coup, essentially bringing about the fall of the country within a week. None of that has happened, and you see them instead bogged down in supply chains, totally broken. You've got that massive convoy now, and I think this is where I'll switch to present yeah. day, which is we need to sink into the reality that it's looking bad. So Russian military strategy on the ground has always been about overwhelming amounts of fire, leveling fires mm -hmm. in the front lines, and then coming in with heavy armor and infantry. They did not do that in the first week. It was totally disjointed and broken down. 
the troops that went in the beginning waves, they looked not good. And like, they weren't even aware that they were really going into Ukraine. And when you listen to some of the soldiers that were captured, they were talking about, we would be welcome here. Sounds like Iraq. You might remember that. (laughs) Right. As liberators. As liberators. We'll be welcomed as liberators. And that was not the case. And they look scared. They look very young. Some of them, I would bet, are not more than 16, 17 years old. And they did terribly. But the fires are moving in. That convoy that is approaching Kiev, they're reestablishing their supply lines. It is really a battle of logistics at this point. And at the same time, you're seeing in Kiev, food is running out. Ammunition is running low. Uh, the fires are going to pick up. And the endurance of the Ukrainians is really going to be tested. And I think that's where, when we look at our limitations here in the West, I think we're going to see something we've never seen before. I I keep hearing false paradigms, like a siege in World War II. And I'm like, no, you don't understand the weapons that the Russians are throwing at Kiev. This is like not World War II. This is uh, incredible. You know, thermobaric weapons. Uh, Describe what a thermobaric weapon is. Essentially, it is an explosive that is so intense, it actually sucks and absorbs the air, the oxygen out of entire areas and brings such an intense explosion that it brings buildings down to the ground. And that was part of my mistake of trying to discuss the nuance of nuclear war on Twitter is two to three months of this in Kiev might not look, minus the radioactive part of it, that much different than a nuclear bomb going off in a major city. And I, I think that's going to be troublesome to watch on Twitter and Telegram and Facebook and all these places over oh, time. I so don't that think people uh, yeah. really understand what could unfold. If they, We have ignored the history of Grozny. We've ignored Aleppo in these places over the last 10 years where the Russians have been doing this kind of stuff. And I think it's going to be very different for the Western society to watch this unfold. See, I, this was what I was thinking this morning. I, I was reading a somebody who had posted something saying, you know, that that all of the optimism in some ways kind of jinxes uh, the, the Ukrainians because we've forgotten what happened in Chechnya. Uh, yes. we, we we forgot what the, the Russians are capable of doing. Uh, and so, you know, people are shocked uh, that, that, for example, that the Russians are bombing hospitals in Ukraine. But this is something that they have done in the past. And if you start dropping weapons like this on civilian populations, I mean, we can have a conversation about whether it's a war crime or not. I think there's no question it's a war crime, but it will be devastating. And so let's go to your point that are we prepared as the world, which has rallied to Ukraine, which is, you know, obviously been riveted by their story, to watch them pounded and incinerated? Well, let me talk about your tweet because you mentioned this several times. Yeah. So... There is this 40-mile-long convoy headed toward Kiev, which could unleash the kind of nightmarish hell that you're talking about. Yes. And the question is, what are we going to do about it? You pointed out that NATO air power could end this invasion in 48 hours, right? Sure. And there's a lot of things that we could do. But in the pushback, of course, is that, no, if we go in there, that creates World War III. So what are all the alternatives? Are we going to sit and watch it happen? actually going in and imposing a no-fly zone actually risks a, a real hot war that nobody wants. So, Yeah, that's what I was trying at? to I was trying to tease out in mass society, which is very dumb to try and do that. So I, obviously I'm not too bright. But what I was trying to point out is what will we think in seven days when we start to watch this unfold? And we just watch indiscriminate killing on social media 
that like we've never seen before. I don't even think World War II is an adequate comparison. And I do respect that we don't send military force into Ukraine. We don't do a no-fly zone because that triggers escalation in the conflict. However, I'm not going to, I guess, settle with the middle ground, which is nothing then. And I think that's where we've got to start to maneuver more creatively. The economic sanctions are not going to take over. And in fact, in a month may create a separate uh, wrinkle. Here's what I'm worried about. 30 days from now, Kiev still has not fallen. The fires continue to rain down. We see mass atrocities and killings. Now we see pushback inside Russia because sanctions are taking hold. Oligarchs are unhappy. Putin is isolated. And he's already said, I would explore the possibility, essentially, of nuclear war. Now, he used it as a threat, and people interpreted it as old Cold War thinking. I'll go one one worse, which is he will not be defeated. This is part of his history, right? He doesn't want to just win. He wants to be remembered. He wants to be the person that put Russia back to what Russia was. And he's looking to history. He's not looking to the present. And so if he's about to lose everything, remember, he's allegedly one of the richest men in the world. Well, that just changed yesterday. His oligarchs are some of the richest in the world. That just changed yesterday. And now he's at risk of losing everything. I think our frame is like, oh, this is like the Soviet Union. I don't think so. I don't know why we wouldn't expect him to use a nuclear exchange to win regardless of what we do. That's what I was trying to tease out last night is that this is not the Cold War. This is something quite different. This is a madman with a nuke. And I, so I think our economic stuff has been great. I really appreciate what the EU's done in terms of moving humanitarian aid and now lethal weapons. A lot of these countries have stood up. And that's a nice workaround from NATO. But I really do believe it's negotiating not with Russian diplomats, but with Russian oligarchs. Our two axes to really try and maybe bring some calm into this are activists and oligarchs, meaning that information is our best weapon right now, I think. Disinformation is not working, at least on the outside, but it still is working inside Russia. Many Russians still believe the Russian narrative. Separately, we have pathways in. We do have social media. I don't think Russians, the Russian people, are on board with what's going on. I also don't think they're entirely aware yet. We could help make them aware very quickly. Okay. You know, second, in terms of negotiations, our envoys into Russia are not Lavrov. They are oligarchs. And so we need to start aggressively pushing to connect with them to get a real handle on where Putin's head is at and what are some other options for de-escalating this through different kinds of surrogates than this state-to-state sort of relationship that we've come to rely on. Okay, so this raises two questions in my mind that I have to formulate. So let me just take a quick break. We'll be back on the other side. If you're a fan of this podcast or any other podcast of The Bulwark, I really think you're going to enjoy the second season of The Focus Group, hosted by our very own Sarah Longwell. Maybe you've heard Sarah talk about these focus groups that she conducts. This season, she's sharing audio from the actual participants to give you an inside listen into how swing state voters are thinking about some of the country's biggest issues when casting their votes in the upcoming primaries in November's general election. It's a great show. And I know you're going to love it. Again, it's called The Focus Group with Sarah Longwell, and you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else where you can consume podcasts. We are back with Clint Watts talking about what happens 
as this war escalates, I guess I have two questions for you, Clint. Number one, you're talking about negotiating directly with the oligarchs, or at least communicating with them. Are you suggesting that that we pursue a course that will lead to regime change? I mean, how does this end? Obviously, one way it ends is with the fall of Vladimir Putin. Is that what you're kind of hinting at? I'm not saying it has to be that, but I think we need to explore what could happen on the other end a little bit more than we have thus far. I still believe the West is in this frame of mind that Putin will at some point come to the negotiation table if he's losing and settle up. I don't think that is correct. He is not going to lose. He will not allow him. Okay. No, I don't think he will. And I, I saw Fiona Hill was discussing this in one of her interviews, and I, that's who I look to you know, for this kind of expertise, which is he's won every war he started so far. Is this going to be his last war? Is he going to go down with a loss? I don't think so. If he does lose, what signal does that send back home? The economy's in trouble. He's boxed in a corner. You can see it with his meetings with his own staff, right? He humiliates them. He keeps them at distance. He's isolated. There have been discussions and rumors, which I can't confirm, but if you watch Senator Rubio's tweets, he's not in a right state of mind. There have been suggestions that he's ill or could be dying. I think we're underestimating the danger that's there potentially with this guy right now and some of the things that he's saying. So you had retweeted this Fiona Hill interview with Politico, and obviously she's one of the uh, you know foremost clear-eyed Russia experts, and she says it's not too late to turn Putin back. It would require you know NATO, Ukrainians, ordinary Westerners, and companies. You know, and she says Ukraine has become the front line, not just of democracy versus autocracy, but also for maintaining a rules-based system, but also suggests that Vladimir Putin could use nuclear weapons. So now we're in this position of thinking the potentially unthinkable. In what context would he use them, and how does he think that gets him what he wants? Or is that a question that presumes a rational thought process? I think it presumes rationality, yeah. which I'm not sure we have at this point. He's been there for over 20 years. Everything he said he wanted to do or pursue, he has pursued. He has said he was going to bring all Russian lands and Russian people back under what was the Soviet empire. And so I think we should take that very seriously about how committed he is to that course of action. He went through all these diplomatic negotiations with Macron and Schultz and you know back and forth with the U.S. That was all a show. He pre-taped his announcements many days in advance and just aired them as if they were live with his justifications for going to war. He was always going to do this. I think that's where U.S. intelligence has been remarkable. We sort of forecast that. But I wonder, is there any intelligence that anyone could have at this point? that understands how this ends with him losing. I'll give you a scenario that I'm worried about, let's say a month from now, let's say he's in a stalemate. What if he's lost maybe 20,000 soldiers? You know, mm -hmm. there's discussion now, Possibly. he's lost five or six. The Russian people start to say 20,000 of our sons have not come home. They start to push on him. Oligarchs say, I've lost all my money. They start to push on him. What would he do? Well, I'm not going to lose in Ukraine, even if that means I have to destroy Ukraine. Would he pull his military force back and use a tactical nuclear strike on someplace like Kiev? Probably not, but maybe oh my God. Kharkiv, right? Hit another industrial city as a signal so that he can march his troops in and get a surrender. I think we need to game this out a lot more. And so the sanctions, like, I think is great. I really am impressed with NATO and EU. But 
I was thinking yesterday, I think that was my panic tweet stream, which was, let's really walk this out a month. Do we think Putin's going to lose? Like, what's his off-ramp? I think that's where you see probably military planners right now trying to figure these things out. So he won't allow himself to lose, but what does victory look like? This is also something I'm having a hard time imagining. So let's imagine that he commits mass genocide, you know, commits these war crimes, levels Kiev, levels these other cities. And now he's stuck with a massive land mass in the middle of Europe with a population that is intensely hostile to him, presuming yes. that they are not totally cowed, which doesn't seem to be, at least in the cards right now, but who knows? I mean, what does the victory look like for him? And, and, he, and he's still a pariah nation if he does yes. the things you describe. But even if he is, you know, dropping hyperbaric weapons, in, you know, in front of the entire world on civilian populations, I mean, Russia will be a pariah nation for as long as he lives. For as long as he lives. But I think he frames himself in terms of history. And he is not Gorbachev, right? I, I think we're always in this frame like, Remember when the wall came down and we all came together in Russia and from Putin's perspective, that was the ultimate betrayal and sign of weakness. And I think we don't take that into consideration enough that he feels Russia has been humiliated and shamed, that it's a zero-sum world, and that Russia must move forward. And so for him to invade Ukraine to begin with or to take Ukraine over time is to reestate himself in history and Russia's place in it. This is where I, I was at last night and really struggling, trying to think through all the options. And I don't have enough information to know, but I don't see him as someone who's going to take a loss and then end his term as the leader of Russia on a down note. And so as crazy as it sounds to us, you know, just destroying Ukraine so you can march in there to a hollowed out landmass, for him, that may be what he wants because the history Jesus. books will say at the end, well, I took Ukraine and I restored Russia to its rightful place in the world. So among the things that were surprising, you know, you mentioned a couple of them. You know, number one was that the Russian army turned out to be much less effective and well-organized than we thought it was going to be. I think we were quite surprised by how forceful NATO has been and the willingness of the EU to get behind all of this. The other thing that's striking, and this is your expertise, uh, Russian disinformation. You've written about this. You've followed this. At least in the first few days, it seems as if Vladimir Putin is losing the propaganda war in his own country. Is that your impression? I mean, I've read some of these reports. How is this war of information playing out? So he's definitely lost the disinfo space in the West, right? I think the Biden administration and all the NATO and ally partners did a great job of debunking, disputing, declassifying intel and getting the truth out there and really framing it properly. And I, it didn't deter Putin, but I think it disrupted a lot of what he was planning to do, to include the military coup, some other provocations, things like that. It definitely is not working inside Ukraine. If anything, it's more created a Ukrainian identity, you know, like in solidarity. Mm -hmm. The one gap I think we have is how much do Russians believe the disinformation and justifications for war? I think it's mixed. I don't think it's worked, but people tend to believe that which they see first and that which they hear the most, and they're not seeing an alternative story. Not yet. The reality will be where this comes crashing down, I think, and the disinformation won't work, which is sons don't come home. You know, military units are suffering. That is where Putin, I think, gets into a lot of danger. By the way, Charlie, just in the last two hours, he started saying Ukrainians are hiding 
military hardware and civilian buildings. That makes them a legitimate right. target. So that's the next layer of disinfo, right? And so, yeah, it's probably true to some extent. People are trying to defend themselves, right, from an onslaught. So he's setting up to, this isn't a war crime. I'm justified in mass killing. Each wave is going to have a version of this disinformation, and we have to keep rebutting it. I'm worried as well that a weekend we think, okay, we did it. We stopped his disinfo train, but it won't stop. We need to keep pushing back. There's also, and this may seem like an awkward point to make, um, there's also Ukrainian disinformation. Yes. There's a danger here as well because we magnify every single Ukrainian victory, ignore Russian victory. So in some ways, we've been telling ourselves or wishing ourselves to get a much more rosy view of the situation that perhaps exists. Is that a fair point? Absolutely fair. Yeah. And it's unspoken to a degree because we want to be on, you want know, to believe people it, yeah. want to believe it and they yeah. want to be on the side. And the Russians want to believe some of theirs too, right? We have to respect that people want to hear what they want to hear. But the Ukrainians have done a great job in the information space, but we don't know how many losses they really have. We know a lot of the Russian losses. We don't see the Ukrainian losses because the Russians have clamped down more on their information environment because they're they're trying to control it. We don't really know. I think the second part is, as we saw with the guys defending Snake Island, turned out yeah. to be alive. Some of the video footage of Air Wars comes from a video game. This is a very classic social media misinformation and storm. I am, over the last 48 hours, continuously pressing myself, am I seeing reality or am I right. you know, in this bubble? And I can't know. I really just can't. And I have a great research team. I deliberately send them out, like, look for the other side, look for the other version. And they see snippets here and there, but it's really hard to get your head around what ground reality is in Ukraine right now. So let's go back to the tweet that created some heartburn for you, because this is the reality that we face right now. And I can't take my eyes off that massive 40 mile long convoy headed there. And I keep waiting for something to happen. Uh, CNN had this fantastic report of a armored column uh, right outside of Kiev that had been absolutely destroyed. I mean, really, with extreme prejudice, obviously, by Ukrainian troops who had some uh, very, very potent anti-tank weapons. We haven't seen that yet. And as you point out, though, you have this massive armor formation plowing toward Kiev, and we're cheering on Ukraine, but we're holding ourselves back. NATO Air Force could end this in 48 hours. I understand the hand-wringing about what Putin would do, but we can see what's coming. So what would you like to see happen over the next 48 hours? You were not suggesting sending in NATO attack planes, were you? I mean, Correct. that's, that, no. that's what you, want, you wanted to clarify that. You're yeah, not I, talking about that. But we are just sitting like watching the doom get closer and closer. Yeah, I was trying to, you know, point out some of the absurdity of our situation, which is just watching people die and cheering for them to fight. You know, it's mm -hmm. almost mm -hmm. like a sporting event at this point where we're like, hey, I wish we could do more, but man, go get them, guys. Let's do it, right? And we're cheering for the underdog. And that's not right. You know, for me, it just doesn't feel appropriate because we did things like convince the Ukrainians to give up nuclear weapons. Oh, yeah. You know, we did things like holding back lethal aid. Uh, Trump, a lot of this is about him, right? And so when I'm, I'm looking at it, I'm trying to think of every alternative possible. We're also essentially watching a foreign fighter flow mount to go in to Ukraine and fight. And we've done that before. They were called Taliban and Al-Qaeda, right? And so that creates these other wrinkles down the road that we haven't really thought through. Some of the forces in Ukraine have a strong white nationalist streak. So 
you know, I'm trying to think through how to balance this out. And I think information is our best option and really going to the Russian people. I think that is the Achilles heel of Putin that might bring him down to some degree without creating a military escalation, which is how do we use information? How do we do what Putin often does to us, but to scale truth? to the Russian people so that they can help defend their own people against what they're being forced to do. I can't even sort of imagine what would happen, how the world would react, because we we just don't have a template to fit this into, that if you're right, let's imagine he uses a tactical nuclear weapon to destroy Kyiv. How do the Russian people respond? How does the Russian military respond? What does the world do You know, when you wake up the day after that? Do you have any sense? I mean, it would be the outrage, the fear, the terror. We'd obviously move into a completely new uh, security world universe. No, and I, that's why I was wondering. I was trying to think, you know, I was trying to think through in, in tweets, which is, you know, worse than paragraphs. Yeah. But it was like, how do we engage, yeah. you know, the military command and control of the Russian nuclear arsenal? Have we thought through, like, hey, guys, uh, we don't want to get into a nuclear exchange with you, and we don't want to see you kill actually ethnic Russians in many of these towns, right? These are your brothers and cousins and uncles and people that you know. And uh, how have you thought this through? How is Putin doing, right? And start to engage in that sort of thing, not trying to trigger a revolution there, but just to make sure that if Putin were to come down and say, press the button, is there somebody on that side that is maybe thinking it through? We had the same debate with Trump, right? We talked about 25th Amendment and using troops on January 6th and things like this. So could we engage in some sort of alternative communication pattern? I think it's possible, but I don't know that we're exploring it at the moment because I have heard a lot of politicians say, we've done all we can do. We got them the missiles. We did sanctions. You know, let's cheer them on and let's hope for the best. I, I think they've convinced themselves the last week they've scored a victory to some degree, and they have. But I, I, I'm super worried about the next month. Yeah. Uh, so on Meet the Press this last Sunday, you were asked about the chances that we will uh, face a cyber attack in some form. Uh, what are the threats? We've been talking about nuclear, we've been talking about hyperbaric weapons, but there's a real possibility that Vladimir Putin will say, okay, you know, hit all the red buttons on cyber attacks. What should we expect? It's exactly right. I think it's more likely than not, particularly if the West were to mount a more aggressive campaign. An interesting way that I think has gone really well is the EU has stood up rather than NATO. Yeah. And mm -hmm. that's been very smart, but that makes them a target. And so when it comes to cyber, some things to remember is a strike on one is a strike on all because all of our networks and systems are connected together. So what would they hit? You know, what sends a signal? I think the first thing they do is they hit military and government sites. And then if they want to create the shockwave, it's infrastructure like energy and finance. And that's where the banking sector, I know, is probably quite panicked right now, trying to secure their defenses. A small blip in terms of technology, infrastructure, communications, and, and finance would create a shockwave in our economy at a time where we're already struggling post-COVID with inflation and, and energy is going to get really tight now with the sanctions on Russia. So I think that's where they would seek to strike to try and push the Europeans back and really send a message that they're not going to take any more military support. So how prepared are we for that? What is your sense? For example, the banking industry has got to know that this was always a threat out there. What is your sense about our level of preparedness dealing with what the Russians might throw at us? Overall, compared to 10 years ago, it's wildly better 
And I okay. think you see the information security associations in each of the sectors, particularly in the U.S. and Europe, are quite strong. The problem is it only takes one success. You know, one malware payload. You can think mm. of Sony Pictures, uh, you know, from North Korea, uh, years mm. in the back. It only takes one break in the in the wall to essentially infect all the systems. And luckily, our communication is better. I think you see our DHS CISA has gotten so much better over the last four to five years about communicating. I think Cyber Command and all of the military is really networked pretty well. And we're working well with European partners. And it's fascinating because in the private sector cybersecurity defense, you see a debate where some are saying colonial pipeline would happen immediately and again. And then you're seeing other cybersecurity companies saying we can respond. Yes, we might have a small problem or a significant problem, but we can recover, which is different. You know, I've not hmm. heard, I believe it, I don't want to name the company, but, you know, as one of their executives, like, we can do this, like, we can have resilience. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I don't know the answer, right, but right. I think we're better off now than we've ever been. And so it also opens the concept of, okay, if Putin does something like that to us, what are we going to do in cyberspace back to Putin? You know, and what would we do? And that's a whole different, you know, series. You've got nuclear in one lane. Now you've got cyber in another, and then you've got military on the ground. Really, you've got three different sets of scenarios. You've got a war game at this point. And I imagine we have a rather significant and robust capacity to launch a cyber attack against Russia as well. Right. I think the challenge for the West is we have to be surgical and Russia will be sweeping, right, in terms of their attacks. Like they'll attack everywhere and not worry so much about the consequences. Whereas for us, we don't want to hurt the Russian people like we actually care. So you don't want to shut off all the food and humanitarian systems. You don't want to hit a hospital inside yeah. Russia. Russia might very well want to uh, hit a hospital in Ukraine or the European allies who are helping with refugees. So, so much of this is speculation about what the intentions are, how if we did A, he would do B. And yet Vladimir Putin made a series of calculations that turned out to be horribly wrong about this attack on Ukraine. That He looked at the West and figured, hey, I, you know, they let me get away with, uh, uh, with, with, with Crimea. America is weak. It is divided. Uh, Europe is weak and it is divided. It will not take a strong stand. And he was completely wrong. He misunderstood what you know, his military capacity was, at least in the short term. And he got our intentions completely wrong which is kind of interesting. So let's talk about this. That In many ways, even though it was a miscalculation, it was not a completely irrational miscalculation because you could certainly imagine looking at Europe, looking at American politics, seeing you know half of the country denying the legitimacy of the election of the president of the United States, all of the Putin propagandists who were major figures in American media, and think, uh, yeah, I don't have much to worry about from those folks. Yes. He saw us as incredibly weak and vulnerable, and he had grounds to see us that way, didn't he? He did. And this was always the plan. Ten years of active measures, which is winning through the force of politics rather than the politics of force, by creating political divisions, social divisions inside your adversary and elevating voices that are sympathetic to Russia's view. And he did that successfully. And I'm confident that that influenced his decision about going into Ukraine. He thought, look, I've got a president that's cheering for me. I have a Trump. major, yeah, I have Tucker Carlson, a cable news host with the biggest audience at nighttime cheering for me. I have people like Tulsi Gabbard, who is a Democrat, saying I'm justified. They're fighting amongst themselves. And that wasn't just happening in the U.S. You're it's saying happening. this mattered to him? For sure. 
he thought of this as assets that would encourage him to take this action, products of his active measures. Yes, he has these individuals that are elevating his position. They're not spies or agents, but the way they frame it is agents of influence, people that think like Putin or want to ingratiate Putin, useful idiots, for fame and money, and that they're saying what Putin wants that audience to hear, which is demobilizing us, meaning we don't have a unified front inside these countries or inside NATO and the EU that would repel us. And it's so fascinating to watch the swing that's happened in the last week as people have seen Putin's real intentions. It, that's almost all been undone from Putin's perspective. You know, you're seeing for Republicans. Now. Yeah, for now. You say, yeah, you're right. <laughs> but you're seeing Republicans who are traditional, Lindsey Graham, Senator Rubio, you know, they're swinging back to be very anti-Russia and Putin. Uh, you're seeing a lot of uh, unity inside NATO. And this was not just happening in the U.S. France and Germany have a version of active measures that have been going on as well. And they were very divided. You've seen unity. You see Germany just committed finally to go beyond 2%. How surprised were you by that? I just fell off the floor and wish okay. I had defense <laughs> stocks. I, I was like, I can't believe it's finally yeah. happened, right? Yeah. So those are all the things that uh, Secretary Robert Gates, you probably remember, was really pushing hard on NATO you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago to like step up. So his gains in active measures have now been muted. And he must be a little bit confused that people in the West who he thought were going to be his fellow travelers and his useful idiots have switched back into what was a more traditional course of the Cold War. Now, how long that lasts, as you said, Charlie, is super important because politics is about opportunism. And that's how we got into this mess and to deal with it, which is active measures work because President Trump used active measures against his political opponents. And he did it last week, too. But I, I saw him give a couple of those speeches, and I could see some cross eyes in the audience, probably a former military mm -hmm. members who were like, are we going to cheer on the invasion of a foreign country? We know Ukrainians. It's a democracy. We're going to watch them die. Are we going to cheer that on? I think that was unsettling even for Trump's most stalwart supporters in many ways. It was, but it is ironic, I would say, to watch some of the Republicans, like, you know, the least Stefanics of the world, you know, pledging their solidarity with a country whose betrayal they were completely on board with just a few years ago, when Donald Trump was shaking them down, was uh, threatening to withhold aid so that they would dig up dirt on Joe Biden. You had the entire Republican Party say, yeah, we're pretty much okay with all of that. But it does occur to me, and I certainly do not claim to understand how Vladimir Putin's mind works, what he understands, what he doesn't understand, but he had to have been immensely emboldened by the four years of the Trump presidency and all that sycophancy. And I wonder if in the back of the mind, he's thinking, okay, NATO is strong right now. NATO is united right now. But all that is necessary for me to break NATO is the return of Donald Trump. I mean, all of the things that are happening right now, a Trump presidency 2.0, given his animus towards NATO, that's the one card that Putin might have or think he has in order to turn this kind of foobar into a success. For sure. And he will. He will push it. Because, look, we're seeing a lot of the Republicans turn for the moment. But on President's Day, they basically were just maligning Joe Biden at a time when he's facing yes. off against Vladimir Putin. We absolutely needed the unity of all presidents over the course of history. And so to think that they would not turn right back around and use it as an opportunity 
well, that would be foolish on my part. And so I would expect that not so much in the midterms, but going into 2024, which would be the third quarter, so probably the end of 2023, you'll see a massive, massive push of you want to be a nationalist, not globalist. Yeah, America first, Russia first, we think about each other first, and then we'll worry about everything else. Social issues is where they'll play out. Guns, religion. I think so. It'll be the same playbook, and the only vehicle to bring that to fold is Trump. I don't really think even other Republicans, Glenn Youngkin or DeSantis, they're not going to go that way, I don't think. I, I mean, I don't know them as well as you you know, in terms of their political leanings. They'll just change the subject. They'll talk about right. something else. Yeah. They'll be more like Bernie Sanders, right, who mm-hmm. would get maligned a little bit with, oh, you love Russia and this and that. And he played it right. He came out and said, hey, I have my own opinions and I'll respect perspectives, but I am not a fan of Vladimir Putin. I'll never support him, right? I was like, thank you for right. saying that. Which is easy. Okay, so I have one last question. But I have to ask you about this, about what happens now to RT, because I know you testified yeah. Um, you know, to, to Congress back in 2017 about how, you know, false news stories and these conspiracy theories that were originally reported by Russia Today, this is, you know, the RT network and Sputnik, the other one, were amplified by people like Infowars and Breitbart and then filtering out into the broader conservative media ecosystem. So what are your thoughts today? We have a sort of an F-U-R-T piece up in the bulwark right now. What, 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 is, what is the fate of RT, particularly in the West? So I think this is the end. And you're already seeing it more in Europe than even here. And you have a spectrum of propaganda to disinformation. And so that's what they call the overt outlets, the white, which is RT, Sputnik News, these sorts of things. In the middle are these sort of gray zone activities, which are these fringe news sites, many of which have been outed since 2016. And so we know the Russian intelligence services are behind it. Then we know about the trolls, which are these covert accounts. And you're seeing the social media companies got much better, right, at taking those down. So it just left kind of these propaganda outlets, which when one political party constantly cites them and retweets them and posts them is a big problem, right? So looking at that, when their voice goes down and their ability to proliferate goes down, they will have such lower reach inside Western audiences. And people forget that in 2016, when I was doing this work, RT was number two cable news service on YouTube. Now, really? Yeah, BBC was number one. Really? And they actually put it in the Intel report, the Senate Intel report that came huh. out, or the Intel assessment right after. And they recognized very early on that if you can't get a radio station or you can't get a television station inside a country, then you go to YouTube and not only do that, you have all your reporters and producers produce their own YouTube shows, which are referencing back, and you create an onion sort of effect of layers of disinformation. I think a positive sign you also see, which still I'm angry at them, is there's been a lot of defections from RT by American and Western journalists that were working there over the last three to four days. And so part of the reason their disinformation works is they had people that look like and talk like the audience they're communicating with saying what Russia wanted. They had Americans on their channels broadcasting. That is going to 
change. That is, you know, not only don't they have audience access, they don't have the personnel maybe they used to have to really advance their message abroad. You know, it's interesting that or that early on I used to get requests every once in a while to show up on an RT show, and they would, you know, they would sign it, you know, RT, and and there were other names that you recognize of of Americans, you know, failed American commentators who who were hosting shows on on RT. But after a certain point in the last couple of years, I would start to get emails asking if I would go on with a host. But then they wouldn't actually identify RT. So I'd write back saying, this is RT, right? And they would go, well, yes, yes, it is. Well, I pass. I am never going on RT. But they stopped actually acknowledging that that's who they were when they were trying to book guests. And I wonder how many people were scammed by that. Oh, I don't tons. Know. Tons. Mm-hmm. I, I've had friends reach out because Russia Today, they switched it to RT, so it'd be a little right. more confusing. They wouldn't and know. Re- yeah. yeah, they'd reach out and be like, is this a Russian channel? You know, they're trying to figure it out. And I'd be like, yeah, don't go on there. They're using you for a purpose. They're not inviting you for your perspective. I'm just trying to remember some of the – some pretty big names of some people at one time who uh, were over there who gave them that gloss of credibility, but they're gone. Clint Watts, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, particularly at this moment in time, as I know you're very much in demand and very, very busy. So we're very grateful. Clint Watts, thank you. Thank you, Charlie. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow, and we'll do this all over again. <laughs>